Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Making Sense of Islam podcast. A few housekeeping points before we begin. Every episode is accompanied by episode notes that highlight everything I've referenced. So people, verses, hadith, etc. They're all in the episode notes, which you can find at makingsenseofislam.com. Most of the episodes are short form, so the notes are few. But when you listen to longer form episodes, the notes are meant to be a resource and an aid. Number two. I would really appreciate it if you could rate the podcast on whatever platform you use and leave a comment, hopefully positive. And number three, every Friday I send out a short email called Coexist Ruminations that shares what I'm working on and reading in my four focus areas. If you'd like to receive these, please sign up by going to makingsenseofislam.com forward slash Friday. That's it for now. Enjoy the show. My guest today is author Hena Khan. You can find her online at her website, hennahan.com. That's H-E-N-A-K-H-A-N.com. Uh, there will be listed a lot of resources, definitely all of her books, and that's where you can link to her social accounts, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Hena Khan is an award-winning Pakistani-American children's author. Her middle grade novel, Amina's Voice, was named the best book of 2017 by the Washington Post, Kirkus Reviews, NPR, and others. She's the author of the Zaid Salim Chasing the Dream series, Power Forward, On Point, and Bounce Back. Hannah has also written several acclaimed picture books, including Golden Domes and Silver Lanterns, Night of the Moon, It's Ramadan Curious George, Crescent Moons and Pointed Minarets, and Under My Hijab. Her newest book, More to the Story, is a middle-grade novel inspired by little women. Hannah began writing for children with scholastic book clubs, publishing books for a number of popular series. She went on to write several choose-your-own-format books, including Adventures to Mars and the Amazon. But as a young mother, Hannah yearned to see books that represented kids like her own children and decided to write them herself. Today, Hannah writes full-time, often highlighting aspects of her culture, faith, community, friendship, and family, and she draws heavily from her own experiences. She enjoys presenting to children, educators, community members, and others, and being a mom to two teenage boys. Whenever she gets a chance, she travels with her family, bakes, and reads books written by her favorite children's authors. On a personal note, and in full disclosure, uh, Hannah is a friend, a community member, I've gotten to know over the years. I've had the pleasure of helping to review some of her books before they go to press. So in full disclosure, I'm on Team Henna. I'm a big supporter. I am biased towards Henna. I believe strongly in her work. I'm very honored that she uh, gave me so much time out of her busy schedule. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I do. There's definitely a lot for us to re reflect on. And without further ado, Henna Khan. Hannah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on it. Uh, I'm honored. I'm honored uh, that you that you are with us. And there's a lot to talk about. And what I thought I would do is begin with this story. Now, I think you might have heard this story, but I don't think you've heard this story from me directly. But the story is uh, about a couple years ago, I was in Japan uh, for business. And it was actually the first day I arrived. So by the, the nighttime... The people that I was with, they said, well, what would you like to do? I said, I have to go to a local bookstore. 
Now, what I meant is I wanted to go to a Japanese bookstore and I wanted to go to the religion section and I wanted them to, because I had translators with me, I wanted them to show me sort of what kind of things are written about the subjects that I'm interested in. They thought I wanted to go to an English bookstore. So, yeah, I don't speak a word of Japanese. They took me to this very large bookstore. We get in, we take the elevator, the elevator doors open, and I'm greeted by one of your books. And I was so happy. I said, oh my God, this is, I know this author. And, and they, they thought, that, you know, they just thought it was so odd. Why am I so excited about this children's book? I said, I know this author. This is the greatest book on earth. Oh, the, this changed my kid's life. And I was so happy that I saw it in Tokyo. I think I, I mentioned it to somebody on your team. And I don't know if you've heard that story before. I did. My, well, my editor told me and it was, uh, <laughs> that was the best story ever. I was like, well, one, just Japan. Yay. <laughs> and then the fact that you saw it and that you were excited like all around. And the reason I begin with that story is it, it just underscores, I think, the importance of, of the work that you're doing, the reach that you have with publishing, the importance of books. So I wanted to use that as sort of a segue and and allow you just maybe to, to speak a little bit about broadly what it is that you are trying to accomplish with, with the types of books that you're writing, what type of you know, meta themes you're trying to get across uh, that you hope your readers will, will understand. Yeah, well, thank you for that. And thank you for your excitement and your support. Um, I, you know, I, I write books for children, but I'm really writing books for everyone. Um, I'm writing to represent uh, people like myself and you and others who have not been seen in the literature for far too long and, um, and realized, after realizing how important it is for children and all people to, to feel included and to be part of, you know, this body of literature that exists and, and culture more broadly, um, you know, I set out to try to change what I, what I didn't see uh, and, and write the books that I didn't have as a child uh, so that our children may have them um, and that other people hopefully can, can learn from them, people from outside of, uh, you know, these are books that feature Muslim characters um, and introduce Muslim traditions and, and beliefs and um, it, either in a more instructive way, like a, a simple picture book that's introducing a concept or, or concepts, or through a story that features Muslim characters just living their daily lives. Um, and hopefully that gives kids who are from, you know, a shared background, a sense of being seen and uh, validation and, and being included and, and feeling, uh, feeling like they matter. Uh, and then for uh, people outside of the culture to, or the faith to, to finally get to know us <laughs> in a way that is accessible and friendly uh, and subtle at times and messages that they may not even realize are, are being shared uh, as a way to really hopefully see how, you know, and why Muslims really aren't um, perhaps what, what they thought or, um, you know, are more similar to them than they may realize. I mean, one of the things, I mean, we, we have your books, of course, at home and, and uh, the kids are familiar uh, with the books. And one of the things that I think people might not understand the importance of is just finding your own name or the name of your Muslim friend or your Muslim sibling in a book oh, yeah. or, or even in a textbook. I remember when I think my, my daughter came home from school one day and she's like, look, uh, Baba, the, the, the kid's name in the story was Zaid. Uh, but it wasn't your book. It was just like a school book. And I remember thinking, you know, you know, my name is Tarek. The only Tarek that ever came up when I was in school was, unfortunately, the Iraqi prime minister, Tarek Aziz, during the Gulf War. Yeah. 
Yeah. And and I remember people used to call me that in school, and I'd be like, man, like it's not a very common name. I mean, it's common, but not like you know the other Muslim or Arabic names. And I remember yeah. feeling like you couldn't have been named anything else. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. just the fact that they find a name that's familiar, I think, is 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 very impactful. Yeah, and I remember, you know, I grew up in the U.S. I was born and raised in Maryland, which is where I still live now. And, you know, I remember just the little things as a kid, like going to a store or, you know, an amusement park and seeing all the little tchotchkes, the keychains and the and the mugs. And back then, personalization wasn't as as easy as it is today. But just to never see your name anywhere, um, in a way, it makes you feel a little invisible, right? Like you're you're not as important as all those people whose names are there that they can just find automatically. So um, I do think names are really powerful and, and having that very simple representation can mean so much. When I was in, in the fifth grade, um, it was the holiday time, or sixth grade, sixth grade, it was holiday time. And the teacher said, okay, we're going to have this holiday collage or something we're doing for the wall. So everybody come up and pick one, or, one of two things. It was either a green, you know, like Christmas tree, or it was a yellow menorah. And, oh. and I remember going to the teacher and be like, well, I don't, you know, in my sixth grade brain, I mean, I don't know exactly what I said, but I was, what I was trying to communicate is like, I don't celebrate either of those holidays. They're like, oh, what do you celebrate? saying it. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, oh, you know, you know, how do you eat? And what, what's that? So one thing led to another. So they said, okay, what do you eat during your holidays? And for some reason in my sixth grade brain, the only thing I could think of is watermelon. <laughs> so the so the the teacher took a big red circle construction paper, cut it in half, and she said, "Okay, here you go, honey. Here's your watermelon." So on the on the wall there are all of these you know Christmas trees and menorahs and this half green circle with black seeds you know f- for me. So one of one of the challenges you know you talk about the subtle things. It's not just the names, but also talking about our holidays, which a lot of our children will experience throughout school, especially Ramadan. Yeah, yeah, and I see it all the time where I do, I do a lot of school visits and, uh, you know, some of my picture books are centered around Ramadan specifically and things that I never had, like similar to you, like, I mean, that's a great story, but I remember as a kid growing up in public school, you know, not knowing all everything about Christmas, knowing a lot about Hanukkah and other Jewish holidays, being living in the area I, I grew up in, um, and, and feeling like no one had ever even heard of Eid or Ramadan to the point where I never even mentioned them. Uh, I knew that I would get a huh or a what, you know, so even when I used to write a note to excuse myself from school on behalf of my parents, I would say, please excuse Henna for her religious holiday. I wouldn't bother to call it Eid um, because I knew that it didn't mean anything to anybody. Um, and so now to see that you know, there is this effort to be more inclusive for sure, but there still is a lot of confusion around it. Um, and a lot of people don't quite understand it, educators and, and kids alike. And so just to even be able to visit a school and to see kids when I mention these things, um, you know, kids in the audience just light up, even either when they hear their name or they hear me talk about things that they participate in and are connected to and for them to share and to feel emboldened to share and, you know, even though it's supposed to be question time, they oftentimes just raise their hands to, you know, make a comment or to, to share with me that I'm a Muslim too, uh, or I celebrate that too, like all ages from, you know, the very little preschoolers through, you know, middle school. Uh, and it's, it's, it's so beautiful to see them want to share that uh, and, and to know that maybe they haven't always felt comfortable to do so before. And, um, 
and even to have educators tell me or remark how surprised they were to realize either in preparation for my visit or while I was there to see how many Muslim kids they didn't know existed um, come up and, and volunteer this information because they finally felt confident enough to do so. Um, so even these little things that we don't necessarily realize matters so much, you know, really can make a difference uh, in a kid's life. So like you, I think, we, you know, we both kind of grew up in the same area uh, around mm-hmm. the same time. Now, when I said that story, I mean, I, I, I chuckled. To be honest, I don't, I don't necessarily feel bad that that happened to me. I, I kind of mm-hmm. outgrew it. But I can't help but reflect that it must have, that type of uh, being invisible, that, that, that feeling must have some kind of detrimental effect to other students. And I wanted to know, you know, personally, did, did you feel alienated? I mean, you, I'm sure you felt alienated when you were younger the way I did, but did you, did you see that as a negative or did that give you strength? You know, personally, how did you deal with that? I definitely don't think it gave me strength, <laughs> for sure. Um, I think, you know, my, my parents were very proud and, um, you know, tried to instill the idea that, you know, you are who you are. And, but I think as a kid, it's, it's, not always easy to absorb that message or to just absorb their confidence. I don't think I, I carried a lot of it. Um, you know, thankfully when I reflect compared to what kids are experiencing today, I, you know, I'd rather be invisible than be targeted or to be bullied. But, um, but I do remember thinking that my, my story, my beliefs, my, my whole, you know, culture, everything that made me different than the, the kids I was in school with, just didn't matter. And no one was particularly interested, uh, which makes you feel less special. You know, no one could participate uh, and share in it with me uh, like I did with others. And um, I think it, I, I know now that it did impact me in ways that I didn't realize even as a kid. And I mean, a basic one that I've, I've shared with people in the, in the past is, is even when it comes to writing, I look back on writing that I did as a child. Um, and I, I saved a lot of what I wrote and, and it's amazing to be able to go back and look at it now. Uh, and I hear this with other kids today still. Uh, but what I did was censor myself. And even in a family newspaper that I used to write about what was going on in my family, I left out all the details about being a Muslim, about having another language at home, about you know being Pakistani-American uh, and, and Pakistani culture was completely absent from my family newspaper. And to me, that's extremely telling that, you know, I, I, I never felt seen or validated. I, I, I was an avid reader as a kid. I never saw myself in any stories. And I just, I think, internalized the idea that those things didn't matter or no one wanted to know those things. So even if I was reporting on my own experience, I left those things out. And to me, that that's really powerful to, to imagine, um, you know, how much representation means. And, you know, I hear about little kids who are writing stories, uh, you know, kids from minority backgrounds, for lack of a better term, uh, who, you know, won't give their kids or their heroes or their characters um, names that are like their own or from their culture. You know, you will, you'll see little Muslim kids not name their superhero Abdullah. They'll name him, you know, Super Mike or whatever it is. And, you know, that idea that we're, we're perpetuating this idea in many ways that you know your story doesn't matter but ourselves um by not feeling like we have the right to tell it if that makes sense no definitely definitely and i mean that's why i'm 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 such um i'm so i'm so passionate about 
the work that you're doing because I think that when I see the impact on my own kids, I mean, my own impact, when that story in, in Tokyo, I mean, just seeing that book, I got excited. I'm like, yes, you know, like, I, like that's, that's me. That's a part of me in a, from, in a sense, even though, you know, I'm not that age group that's reading that book the way that my kids are. But I see that somebody's speaking for me. Mm-hmm. And like you, I mean, I was a reader, still, still am a reader. And, uh, you know, to be honest, a lot of the great books of literature, for example, of the Western canon that we would read, you know, when we were older, maybe later in high school and in college. I mean, yeah, okay, I understand why this book is great. It's wonderful. I love it. You know, I, I, it's on my shelf. It's in my library. But to be honest, that story is not my story. Mm-hmm. I can't see that arc is not my arc. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that that's important that, that, you know, we have that, that model. So, you know, that's sort of what you're trying to do. You know, you're trying to create this, uh, a certain type of representation for Muslims in, in children's books. And what I would like, what I want to ask you in, re, in regards to that is, I mean, that's a huge topic. And mm-hmm. how do you, I mean, it's so big, sometimes it's overwhelming. How do you choose what to write? You, what kind of themes you choose to tackle mm-hmm. how do you how do you take from that big thing you know this big gap that we have of representation or underrepresentation and how do you try to fill it yeah yeah it is a big topic um something that you know i've been thinking about for many years now and my own thinking has evolved over time um to give you an example when i first started and this was you know night of the moon was my first muslim themed picture book that came out in 2008, which means I started working on it back in 2005. So this is a while ago. Um, and at a time when there was so little representation, uh, the books I could find with uh, Muslim characters in it were really limited to a couple of types, either Islamic books that are written, you know, for the purpose of teaching our children how to be Muslim, you know, like Islamic manners or, you know, how to pray or things like that. Um, stories from the Quran that were, you know, intended for children um, or reference books that were featuring, you know, Muslim topics like the festivals of, of Eid or, you know, Ramadan as a nonfiction book that you might find even in a picture book format, but intended to be you know, taught in a social studies class or something like that. Um, so there was really hardly anything that was story or I might find a story that might have been set. I remember there was one book I bought for my son that was, I think it was called Ahmed's Secret or The Day of Ahmed's Secret or something like that. And it was about a little boy in Cairo who um, secretly fasts during Ramadan. And it was a cute story, but something that I couldn't, you know, my child couldn't relate to in terms of being an American child. Um, and so when I first started, you know, it, was, it came from just that, realization that there was nothing uh, a story about Ramadan to share in a in a public school setting or a public library setting that would be inclusive and really present Ramadan this very misunderstood concept for many people uh in an accessible friendly school appropriate manner that was really my intention um and you know I tried to make it appealing enough to educators by adding in things like the lunar cycle and, you know, my characters watching the moon changing shape. And I thought, well, maybe educators would be motivated to use this in the classroom because it has another learning uh, aspect to it, aside from just learning about Ramadan and Eid. And, um, and that was sort of where I started and in terms of addressing this enormous gap, but that was more of a, let's explain who we are, (laughs) you know, even though I was trying to do it in a story format and trying to make it, you know, not nonfiction-y, 
um, but I still am explaining, you know, through the course of the story, what Ramadan is in a very, very basic way. Um, but I remember even, you know, as an author and as a writer, I thought, you know, I have to represent everyone, you know, <laughs> which was obviously impossible. But, you know, as a Pakistani American Muslim living in on the East Coast, you know, with my unique experience, you know, how can I explain and represent, you know, two billion Muslims, but I felt that pressure, you know, to be everything to everyone. Um, and I worried even, even about that book, I thought, okay, well, this is a Pakistani, you know, tradition. I, I called it night of the moon because of the Pakistani Chandra, the night before the last night of Ramadan, the, you know, beginning of Eid, when we celebrate, uh, is a Pakistani tradition. I said, well, what if that offends some Muslims who don't practice this tradition? And, you know, what if they, you know, and I just beat myself up about these things. Um, and that was part of why I wanted to write Golden Domes and Silver Lanterns, the color book, which was more, you know, less culturally specific in a sense, because I wanted something that everyone could see themselves in. And, and that was really where I started. But over time, you know, in terms of shifting from what I saw more as books to, you know, fill a very specific purpose, like, okay, this is a book about Ramadan. I'm writing now a book about a color concept books that explains or introduces concepts that are special to Muslims or important to Muslims. Um, in a non-specific, holiday-specific manner. So you could go to your English-speaking bookstore <laughs> somewhere and go to the religion section and hopefully find a children's book that was about Islam that you know they don't send back because it's not Ramadan. Um, and that was really my thinking for Golden Domes or something that could be used year-round in the classroom. Um, and I, you know, and from there I, I realized that okay, you know, it's important to have teaching books or whatever you want to call them, you know, books to introduce these things and um, and they're, you know, I think they're, they have value, inshallah, like, you know, they, they, they matter. But I also thought kids just deserve to see themselves as the heroes in stories, the, you know, Muslim children, like we were talking about before, who haven't had the chance to just be a character, um, you know, deserve that uh, experience of, you know, full experience in a book um, and a you know, a story that doesn't necessarily revolve around being a Muslim or Muslim traditions, even if that is a part of it, an important part of it. Um, you know, they just get to be a kid um, and and have some kind of adventure, whether it's, you know, a personal journey or an actual adventure, or making a team or whatever it is, because I think it's so, that's so important too. So I'm trying to still wrestle with these ideas of, you know, what themes to write, how to choose, um, what type of representation I want to see, what I don't want to see, um, and especially as we see even the conversation around representation, you know, diverse books in general evolve um, as a whole. We see, we see a lot of conversation uh, really in the last five years uh, around this in, among librarians and educators and in the publishing industry. How do we represent the underrepresented? How do we fill this enormous gap that has existed for far too long? Um, and there is this new rush to create new content uh, and so I think a lot about what even is being created now and um, you know trying to balance out the types of stories that I think kids need so I guess it's a long answer to your question but really I, I, I try to think about what I think kids need um, and to try to stay true to my reader um, and and care about kids and and what they're feeling um, and hopefully you know helping them out in some way by, by giving them a story they'll enjoy or, or find helpful in their life. Well, on the uh, sort of trying to represent everyone mm -hmm. challenge, 
have you gotten any pushback from anyone within you know our community be like oh you know sister that's you know i want to point out this you know egregious mistake that you made in your book and, and this is actually not true i mean have you, have you ever had to deal with yeah. that yeah very rarely but it has happened <laughs> it's been a, it's been a number of years now so um i can point to you know a handful of times perhaps um and you know sometimes i just get overall comments about um you know, from people who are very skewed one way or another, you know, even people who maybe have, have left Islam, who are very uh, angry that I'm writing these books, or, you know, just, just people with personal reasons, I guess, so more so than specifics. Um, but every now and then it would happen, and, you know, everyone's entitled to their opinion, but but alhamdulillah, most people have been just positive about the idea um, of these books. Like, a funny one, I remember, like, with the, the Curious George Ramadan, I, I was really worried when I wrote this book that, you know, how, how might people react? Um, and, in, and in fact, when the book, people wonder, like, how, how did you write a Ramadan? How did you write a Curious George book? You know, and can anyone do that? And it was actually the publishers who create new Curious George books who approached me. And uh, the Ramadan book was going to be part of a series uh, that included Curious George celebrating Christmas and Hanukkah and St. Patrick's Day and Halloween and all sorts of holidays. And they, they thought, well, you know, maybe it's time for him to celebrate Ramadan. What do you think? Would you like to write it? And, you know, my first instinct was, yes, of course, that's, that's great. Um, but then I, I was like, well, you know, how does this work? And um, is, is George a Muslim? You know, is the man in the yellow? <laughs> you know, like, like and so the editor said, well, how about they're celebrating Ramadan with their Muslim friends and I was like okay you know that works but then I thought okay well does George fat you know should I make him fast should I make him you know like he goes to the masjid you know like I had to think these things through like what you know he's a monkey it's like surprise kids George has been Muslim this whole time exactly and then that I was like well great how are people going to react to that you know like the non-Muslims are gonna be like what um you can't have him or you know whatever so uh so i think it was a good decision on their part and you know it worked out well i think you know but um but it was something where you know i, I did have one person um you know question the, you know the monkeyness of him <laughs> being in the book and mm -hmm. which you know i was like well it's it's a children's book you know like if, if you can't suspend disbelief like i don't i mean i can't I can't worry about that, but, um, but I even had people say, you know, I wish you had, it's a board book with, you know, I don't know how many words, maybe 500, you know, 500 to a thousand words at most. Um, and I had someone say, you know, I wish you had explained more about the significance of Ramadan and, you know, why we fast and, you know, all this stuff. And I was like, it's a, you know, there's seven pages and <laughs> it's written in rhyme and it's got a monkey and you know it, it's hard to please everyone so that that's what i i think i developed a thicker skin as time went on and realized that um i you know i can't represent everyone i can do my best to represent what i what i understand and um you know and I, i'm so grateful now to have more muslim voices out there and other people representing so it made me relax too and realize okay I, you know it's, it's one impossible for me to represent everyone and two you know, unreasonable for me to think that I can, um, or even to, to try. And so it, it helps me now to be more specific. Like, so even in the novels I'm writing, you know, I'm writing about an experience similar to mine, um, with Pakistani American Muslim characters. And certainly that doesn't represent anyone, but we need more Muslims telling their stories. Um, and, you know, even to demonstrate the, the vast diversity that exists within our community, uh, in, in every single way possible. 
Yeah, I mean, and, and for what it's worth, I mean, I've I've always enjoyed uh, reviewing the books um, to give you that sort of perspective. I mean, there's nothing you've ever written that's that I would ever say is wrong or you know Islamically incorrect, and you know. I think that you you do go through the efforts to, to mitigate those problems. You know, just for people that are listening, you know, I don't want people to think that you're just sort of, you know, the wild wild west, just writing what you want. I mean, you do take the efforts to make sure that everything is correct from that point of view. But these are not books of you know tomes of theology. You know, you're not you're not trying to wrestle with you know Saint Thomas Aquinas and what's the Muslim response to that. You know, you're trying to get kids, Muslim kids, to understand that they that they are represented, that they are that there are people like them, there are characters like them that 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 can inspire them, that they can see themselves in, etc. You know, as you said, at the end of the day, it's a children, the children's books. Right. And on the flip side, I guess is can you share a little bit of some of the impact that you know you're having you've mentioned that a lot of the school visits and the kids sort of beam are there any stories that can you share us one or two stories that really you know really touched you so deeply that you felt so overwhelmed by you had no idea that your books could do that to, to kids yeah yeah um, it's it's such an honor I mean it really is such an honor um, and I, I get kids asking me all the time, you know, what, what do you like about being an author or why, you know, why do you do this or what inspires you? And I always tell them that it's, it's you, you know, and, and it's, it's incredible to have kids on both sides, really, you know, tell me things that, that move me. And I don't think they realize what an impact they have on me, but I've gotten a few messages even, or letters from kids who Muslim kids who tell me, um, you know, tell me things like I, you know, I used to be ashamed of who I am, or I used to try to hide it, and I don't anymore. And, you know, your books have given me confidence or made me proud of who I am. Um, and, you know, I, I, I mean, it's so overwhelming and, and humbling to read something like that. Um, and then, on, you know, or to have a, a child, you know, just just say even something as simple as, you know, I read your book this many times, or, you know, it's my favorite book, or, um just as, as a, as a, as a writer, you know, that's just an honor. And, and as a kid who used to love to reread books, I'm like, wow, you, you actually not only liked it, but you liked it enough to read it several times. It's amazing. Um, but also just, you know, non-Muslim kids telling me, um, how much they connected with the characters or how much they saw themselves in the books, um, to have, you know, a, a, a little white boy, uh, from a conservative Christian family, in an upstate New York, like rural community, um, you know, say to his librarian that, you know, I, the, how much he connected with Amina's voice and, and how he would feel so sad if something like what happens to her mosque would happen to his church, you know, and, and things where I'm thinking, wow, you know, people who we consider maybe hard to reach are the ones who don't know Muslims um, or haven't had the chance to get to know a Muslim family um, to, for them to be able to, hopefully connect with the story I've written and, and develop empathy. Um, I think one of the most powerful experiences I had recently was a child in Baltimore. And I went to a school that was a, a small private school, a very specialized school. And um, I was meeting with a group of only 20 kids and they had all read Amina's voice up to page 107, I was told, and they weren't done. Um, and when I went to visit, we had a, we, like a horseshoe style discussion um and just chatted about things and and this one little boy was listening for a while and finally he said um you know i i i come from a really racist family 
And I was taught to believe that, or I hear things like Islam, uh, Islam teaches Muslims to kill Americans all the time. Oh, wow. And um, I'm so happy, you know, that I'm here and that I can learn the truth. Um, this, was, this was in Baltimore. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And so those types of things, you know, you just can't. And I, you know, I was kind of grumbling before I went because it was early and <laughs> I didn't know where I was. And I remember complaining to my, my friend. I was like, oh, I have to do this thing. And it was ended up being such a transformative experience for me. Um, and just to, you know, connect with these kids of all backgrounds uh, in this really intimate way. Um, but to have him, you know, say that and then just share later on in a letter they all sent me how he felt, you know, comfortable enough to, to share that. And he felt it was, you know, a safe space for him. Um, but, you know, just the idea that, you know, I could help in some tiny way or these books make a difference and shaping the way kids think is, is just amazing to me on, on both sides, you know, like getting to know us as a community and hopefully creating that empathy and, and, and tolerance and, uh, and then, you know, for the Muslim kids who maybe are struggling with their own identities and, and feeling seen or validated, if it, if it can help in some small way to do that, you know, it's, I can't think of anything better than that, really. So, Hannah, I mean, that's, that's amazing. I'm uh, very moving. Um, and thank you for, for sharing that. Now, unfortunately, both of us, we know that, that our, our kids in schools are, are facing the challenges that we didn't face. Uh, and if if you permit me, I just want to read back to you two quotes from um, an article you wrote in the Washington Post in April 2019 mm -hmm. about bullying. So you say, quote, Muslim kids growing up in today's America face an entirely different landscape. Almost half of American Muslim kids experience bullying, bullying or discrimination in the classroom. End of quote. And then the second quote from the same article is, quote, there is a very disturbing trend in schools that is not getting enough attention, perhaps because it is not quantified. Hate lay speech against Muslims that is being normalized and accepted by children. End of quote. Yeah. So, I mean, even though we're making these great strides and now we have uh, the ability to publish for uh, Muslim representation in children's books and all the work you're doing and, and, and across other sectors, when, you, when I read stuff like that, and of course, I, I talk to my own children that are coming home on a daily, weekly basis with stories. It's it's troubling, and and I I'd like to can you I'd like to shift just a little bit in gears and just see if you can address this issue of bullying, help our listeners understand the 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 the, the, the how prolific it is, how dangerous it is, and, and unfortunately some of the trauma that that ensues with the children. Yeah, absolutely. And and really, it's, you know, it speaks to, I think, the sense of urgency that many of us have now, in even in terms of the work I do, like visiting schools, you know, it's, it can be exhausting at times. And, you know, I, it takes away from writing and other things I'm supposed to be doing. But I feel like I have to go to these schools if I have the chance um, and talk to these kids, uh, because it is such a, such a huge concern and something that keeps me up at night. But like you said, these, uh, you know, the studies have been done, um, you know, a nationally representative study that was done uh, by ISPU uh, was the one that I, I quoted in the article where it's, you know, around 50% of kids and they, they did, it was comparison in comparison to their, you know, Christian and Jewish counterparts and, and found to be more than double what other children were experiencing. And I know the Southern Poverty Law Center and others have been doing other studies around bullying of Muslim kids. I know some smaller Local studies have found it to be even higher 
in some areas. And of course, that's only what's being reported. So we know that it could be higher than that even. Um, and I know another part of that, that statistic is that I think it was something like 25% of bullying incidents were done by teachers and administrators. Oh my God. Um, that was perhaps for me the most shocking and disturbing, but it's, it's a serious problem that our kids are facing. And, and to go back to what we were talking about earlier about our own childhoods, you know, and feeling invisible, um, you know, sort of the opposite challenge now where, where Muslim kids are, you know, being specifically targeted for who they are. Um, and it's not just the kids who are, visibly Muslim, the little girls in hijab who, who maybe have it the hardest in some cases, but, um, you know, kids, all kids, I hear it from many different types, even just recently, a little second grader, um, a little African-American girl with glasses and grades, like the cutest thing ever. And, you know, she told me that she was being bullied, bullied at school uh, for being a Muslim. So it's very widespread. Um, but on top of that, we're seeing, you know, what I mentioned is, is the not even, I wouldn't even call them microaggressions because they're, it, it's, it's hate speech. You know, our kids being told, um, as, as jokes sometimes, you know, just comments that are being made, um, among friends at times, like my own son experienced this, uh, being called a terrorist or being asked, are you going to blow that up? Or, um, you know, kids who I, I met with in a, in a, classroom setting we're telling me Muslim kids were telling me they hear things like ISIS and Allah Akbar boom all the time and and it's just heartbreaking that these kids have to absorb these messages and and these attitudes towards them and in some cases be asked to laugh it off because it's a joke you know um and not know how to how to confront that because it's one thing if you're being outright bullied if you're being physically harmed if you're being threatened um but it's another thing to have to hear these things and to know it comes from a place of ignorance and bigotry and, you know, and hate, um, but not know how to respond to it. And, and that's where I've been talking to educators and parents as much as possible. Um, but I, I, you know, I've been grappling with this and what do we do as a community and how do we, as a larger community, not just the Muslim community, but as, as Americans, you know, how do we confront this? Um, and I've seen other campaigns that have been successful in terms of rooting out certain words, you know, that, kids now understand very clearly better than adults sometimes that, you know, we don't say that, uh, and that's not okay. Um, and I don't know why the same level of emphasis, well, I, I think we have ideas why, but, you know, unfortunately it's these types of terms are not getting the same, uh, level of attention as I think they should and, and have to, um, before it just become, and it already is becoming, uh, very common and, and harmful to our kids. Yeah, I mean, I love the way you phrased it, you know, normalizing hate-laced speech. And we've all experienced, I mean, I, I, I experienced it in my adult life as well. Um, I mean, I was in a business meeting once and uh, overseas, and there was like some kind of projects one of us had to take take over. And one of the directors looked at me, he's like, well, obviously you can't do that because you're Muslim. You know, you can't run that because you're Muslim. And everyone just it was like normal what he said and i was like what what you, how could you say that and not not feel that that's you know not i'm embarrassed that you said that right but right. for you right yeah i'm embarrassed for you like i mean i can take the heat i guess maybe i'm just you know maybe a bully at heart so i just i was looking for a way to bullying back which which i know is is bad but i mean anyway we are who we are but uh, it's normalized is the thing is the is the danger is that we like you said the kids are supposed to laugh it off cuz it was a joke mm -hmm. and i'm supposed to accept that he said that just because whatever. Mm -hmm. um, 
And that's really where where the danger is. And we know from other other minority communities throughout history, even in, in recent history, I mean, as in like 100 years ago, uh, this can have devastating effects over time. You, when generations of, of the population are raised this way, like that kid in Baltimore said, I come from a house where this is just normal to speak like this. It's it's really it's really damaging. I remember we have a, a community member um, uh, who you actually you might know, but but you know to to keep confidences, I won't mention their names. But they had a traumatic their their child had a traumatic um, bullying incident that that w- w- resulted in some serious physical damage, neurological damage. Oh my goodness! Yeah, and 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 um, this is in our county and our state, and I'm like, what? Are you kidding me? That's I mean, that's criminal. That's like a criminal act, you know, for somebody to do that. And I think that maybe maybe people listening don't understand the extent of how serious that can be. It it can be so much of a problem. We know that unfortunately, kids commit suicide because of bullying. And if that type of pressure leads to that outcome, then you can imagine, you know, what 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 the quality of their education is. You know, they're not going to be focusing on education at all. They're just every day is like survival. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I mean, of course, that's, yeah, that's one end of it. You know, the, the most horrific scenario, um, which unfortunately we, we see, you know, like there was that widely, um, well, I don't know how widely, but I, I remember reading about the little girl in Massachusetts who got a death threat in her cubby at age 10, you know, a little Muslim girl. And so, I mean, how traumatic is that? And how do you, how do you continue to go to school when you know that you're facing that every day? Um, and then on the other hand, you know, the kids who, who want, you know, to feel accepted and, and almost do maybe, you know, the ones who, but then have to overhear these things. And I even confronted my own kids when I talked to this group of children who told me how prevalent it was for them to hear these types of comments. Um, this was a few years ago and I mentioned it in that same article and, and my kids, you know, sort of like, brush because I had always asked them you know is, is anyone saying anything to you does anyone you know you know say anti-Muslim things or are they making fun of your name I would check in with them from time to time and they'd always say no we're fine and when I heard this about this other group of children I thought they're in the same county how can they have such a different experience and when I came back and asked my children they said oh yeah 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 we hear that all the time and when I asked why they didn't tell me, it was because they, they knew what I was asking, you know, that I was asking specifically, are you being bullied? Are you being harassed, you know, mm. threatened or anything like that? And they just, you know, heard these things. And, oh, they're not saying it to us, you know, but they're hearing these things. And even that, like you said, what, is that, what does that do to you over time to know that, you know, you're being perceived as this, this enemy or this, you know, other um, that's, you know, thought of in such a terrible way and and um you know that that can just be so damaging as well you know of course and and, I, and that's the one the one i think that is is just so common that you know we if the bullying stats we know are, are so alarmingly high um and then this like i said isn't isn't being measured but it's just sort of becoming the new normal that you know my, my son told me his his friends his diverse group of friends um you know were, were making these types of jokes and he finally confessed to me last year that he didn't know what to do about it as an eighth grader. So, um, you know, it's not just even the little ones who are facing this. So other than the fact that you're involved in this space, and, and I'm, I'm grateful f- for your involvement, the, the one of the reasons I bring it up in our conversation now is uh, I think as parents, we also have a role to play in helping, I, how, how, what's a polite way of saying it, of, of basically not embarrassing our kids 
or or imposing on them cultural norms that are not really like religious or Islamic norms, but are cultural, to the point where we make them stand out more than they already are. And I mean, it's it's funny. You you speak a, you speak a little bit about um, in one of your interviews about food, mm-hmm. and and I, I immediately, I, I, it it just brought back all of these memories of of not wanting my clothes to smell. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I, I mean, we laugh, but people do not understand the the, the yeah. deep fear that oh, till yeah. today I have of like. No, open all the windows, you know, all the fans. Yeah. Yeah. Light some candles, you know, shut your closet door, run out of the house. Yeah, all of it. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's food is food and smell. And unfortunately, a lot of the American cuisine is not very, uh, you know, it's, we're not, American is, is, is not known for its, its cuisine, let's just say that. So yeah. I, I can understand that. But there are other like little things I think that we can do um, to help. I, I was in the UK recently. And I was told by uh, some of the people that I was meeting that in some parts in, in England, it's it's very common that on free dress day, children from the subcontinent will go to school in shalvar, shalvar kameez. Like that was the free dress. Hmm. Which as an American, I thought was very strange. I was like, but you're in England. Why would you, you know, why would you, you dress like that? So maybe there's so many of them there that it's that's like normal. But right. there are people in this country, Muslim families in this country, that would do that kind of thing, I think, to their children. Right, and right. we have, you know, we don't have to eat uh, biryani as a Muslim. That's like a cultural thing. Right, right. You totally. Know, we, you, you don't have to, you know, uh, dress a certain way uh, because that certain dress is, is culturally informed. And we have like, we have rules of what we're supposed to, how we're supposed to carry ourselves. But they're pretty broad. Right. So in my right. case, I will try to avoid a, a school meeting on a Friday. So if I'm coming from the mosque and I'm giving the sermon, and I, and I know I'm not going to have time to go home and change, I can't. I can't imagine the look on my kids' if, you know face if like I walked into school like that, you know, wearing my right. my regalia. So there are things, uh, and I guess as parents, we're always going to embarrass our children. I mean, I, that's just sort of the nature of life. But what I'm talking about is, I, I guess there are things that we can do to help not make them stand out. Um, and, and I think that some of your, your writing addresses that. W- would you yeah, agree? Yeah, and some of it's just fun, you know, to include those little details or cathartic in my case. I went with the food smells on the clothes. Um, you know, but yeah, or the, or the strange foods in the lunchbox that, you know, I think now actually it's funny. My, my, I picked up my son from carpool when he was in elementary school and his friends, um, his little Jewish friend who was riding with us said um, that he was, he was eating a samosa in my car that was left <laughs> over from his lunch. And I said, wait, <laughs> you know, I was traumatized by having, you know, certain foods in my lunchbox, like shami kebab sandwiches. And like, you can't eat a samosa. <laughs> oh, how, how the tables have turned. Wow. I know. I know. So now like, it's oh, totally cool to eat, you know, whatever, have kimchi in your lunchbox. But um it's, it is it is fun to write about those things, but I completely agree that we do tend to, and I think for the wider community the, or the, the non-Muslim community, they they are so confused about where culture ends and religion begins, and you know they often conflate the two. And um, and, it, and an example I often talk about is in the Curious George Ramadan book. There's a scene where after they've they've broken fast, they're having dinner, and there's this big spread, and it says something about like there's kebabs, curries, veggies, and rice, and it says George spots a pizza and takes a hot cheesy slice and there's an image of him pulling a slice of pizza off his table that's laden with food as you would imagine it would be during an iftar um 
And I had several reporters who interviewed me about the book, who had gotten a copy of it and read it ahead of time, asked me about why I chose to include pizza. And they were really curious to know this. Like, why did you? And I, it was such a telling question. And you're like, haven't you ever been to a Muslim American iftar? There's always pizza. When is there not pizza? But but just the idea that they expected the kebab and the curry, and they probably were surprised that I didn't include hummus, you know, but why did I include pizza? And I feel like that's where oftentimes there's this idea, this notion that Muslims have special foods or they, you know, we wear special clothes. And yes, we can, of course, but the idea that there's just one, you know, or a few makes no sense. And I think it reinforces ideas that they have that are completely incorrect about who we are as a people. And I agree that as, as parents, sometimes we, we want our kids to be proud. I think we see it maybe more with children of immigrants, you know, who are sort of like, wear your culture, you know, and, and wear it proudly and like literally, but and figuratively too. Um, but sometimes kids, you know, don't want to be the representatives and they don't want or of anything, the, the faith or the culture. Um, and some, some kids embrace it and are really excited to do it you know i think it depends on the child um but i do think we can spare them some um pain i think if we don't force it if they're not they're not interested in 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 being in standing out or having to represent or having to explain um and there might come a time where they they want to and i know as a kid i went through phases where i felt more comfortable or less comfortable with and as a young adult you know with with various aspects of my culture so i think you know we need to we need to give them that space and if they're already feeling different enough you know maybe we shouldn't force it or shove it you know yeah absolutely even more uh, Hannah, I want to I want to shift gears a little bit and ask you uh, a little bit sort of d- dig down a little bit more in the publishing, you know, the mechanics of 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 the trade, sure. because, you know, you mentioned a, a, a little while ago about, you know, you, d- you don't really get a lot of pushback, but, you know, sometimes you get pushback. And I think when people comment like that, they don't realize what it actually means to publish a book and how many people are involved. So could you just share with us a little bit about that? You know, what, who are you publishing with? How does that happen? You know, typically how many people have to, you know, quote unquote, touch that manuscript from the time you write it till the time it's like, you know, hits the bookshelf, just so we can, more people have an understanding of what that process is like. Yeah. So I am traditionally published, which means that I have, you know, various publishing companies you know, produce my work for me. Um, and of course, now there's more options out there than there were, you know, 20 years ago, people, a lot of authors are self choosing to self publish books, um, which I can't speak to, because that's just not my experience. Um, but in my case, I, you know, I write, I, you know, I come up with an idea, I think about a book that I'd like to, I'd like to write, um, I go through the process of writing it and sharing it with a writing group, which I have of, of three, um, published authors, actually all non-Muslim, but um, who I respect as writers and as critique partners, um, they share their feedback with me. I often have other readers like yourself and, um, you know, family members or whoever I think could give me important input uh, into the manuscript while it's, you know, still being developed. Um, and then uh, in terms of the, the editorial process, well, there's two things, the editorial process and the publishing process. So I guess I'll speak to the editorial editorial process since I already started, but from, from then when it's, when it's completed, it would go to, um, my editor who would give me some feedback and back and forth. And then, um, it would go to, uh, 
a copy editor and, and so on. Um, but before any of that happens, um, I would have to sell the, the manuscript. And even you know, as, as a published author, um, we still get rejection and we still go through the same thing each time. Um, it's just you know a, a bit easier once you've done it a few times. But in my case, I have an agent who represents me, uh, which is not always necessary. But if you want to work with one of the what we call like the big five or like the larger publishing companies, they usually don't accept unagented work. So an agent would have to submit on your behalf. Um, some of the smaller publishing companies, independent publishers, will look at work that you just submit to them but it is harder to get it seen um or taken seriously sometimes if, if you don't have an agent attached to it so you know when i write something that i'm still trying to sell i will get it to where i think it's it's solid and then i'll share it with my agent my agent may give me more comments um to where you know he thinks it's ready to sell um it'll go out on submission and potentially be rejected or not you know many times there's several rejections and maybe an acceptance um, and then, you know, I start the editorial process. So by me, you know, and, and then even when a, when a publisher is considering accepting a manuscript, you know, the editor may be interested, but then the editor has to take it to their editorial team. So a whole room full of people are sitting there deciding whether or not they want this book. Um, and then if it passes the editorial review and they decide to make you an offer, then it goes to the business people and, and they decide whether they can afford to publish it and so on. Um, when it comes to the marketing and the artwork, you know, I, I do picture books. That's very much a collaboration. Um, people ask me all the time, how do you find your illustrators or how do you pick your illustrators? If I'm writing a picture book, do I need my book illustrated ahead of time? If you're getting your book traditionally published, your, your publishing company handles the art. And I've been very lucky and able in being able to comment on the artist or in some cases introduce an artist to my publisher, but that is not the norm at all. Usually they retain full artistic control um, to the point where most authors don't even comment on page spreads or see the art until it's final. Oh, wow. Um, which is so hard to imagine, but um, because I've been writing books, you know, for by mainstream published com publishing companies that deal with Islam, they wanted to make sure it was accurate. So I've been able to weigh in for all of my picture books. Um, but you know, so publishing, you know, the design team is in charge of all of that. Um, and then marketing and publishing and everybody comes together to decide on the cover. That's like where the entire company is involved, including the sales reps and everyone who's going to go out and try to represent this book. So a lot of hands <laughs> on a book before it. So I was just going to say a lot of hands. Could you give us like a number, how, just roughly very ballpark, how many people other than yourself do you think have to comment and make these decisions before the book is actually published um if it's a picture book it's more than a than a novel because a novel the art might be limited to just a cover um but if it you know and then there's you know not as much of a art you know process in terms of getting the art done but i would say you know anywhere from i don't know 20 to 40 people oh my god wow <laughs> yeah that's a lot so, yeah, more, far more than we might think, for sure. And has anyone ever like come back for like a major change, like a seismic shift uh, that you've had to, you know, go back and almost redo? Um, not usually, thankfully. <laughs> Nothing where it's like been mostly done and then we decide, you know, to completely change everything. Um, you know, there's been 
smaller changes with regards to art or, um, you know, a cover or things like that. But um, I've never had to completely change anything. Um, you know, in the in the process of getting published, you know, initially, you know, I've had to work on many different revisions or uh, with Ominous Voice, for example, I had to figure out what was not working about the story and I rewrote it, you know, entirely in a different point of view um, in, in the attempt to get it sold, which eventually worked. But after it's been accepted, thankfully, I haven't had anything where it's like, you know, can you write the whole second half of the book over again or anything? Okay, like that? good. Because um, I have this really bad memory of, of handing in one of my chapters of my thesis. And mm -hmm. I, you know, I worked on it for, you know, maybe four months. And then I get to, to the to my advisor, and my advisor's like, "Thank you so much. I, I really enjoyed reading this, uh, but you know, you need you need to redo the whole chapter." Oh, and, no. and I think it was the only time in my life that that my heart was broken. I was like, you know, oh. <laughs> that was like yeah. the ultimate rejection. You know? oh, that's so painful. Yeah. No. Um, well, luckily I write fiction, so there's a little yeah. more leeway, I think, when it comes to what I'm writing. Um, so thankfully that hasn't happened. So, Hannah, you were publishing with Chronicle, correct? Yes. So I actually started publishing with um, my very first foray into children's publishing was with Scholastic and it was with their book clubs. And I was writing for a different series they had. And that's how I started writing for children and realized I wanted to continue. And then Chronicle, uh, which is a medium sized publisher based in San Francisco, was um, the one who's published my my picture books, um, The Night of the Moon and Golden Domes and Silver Lanterns, and now Crescent Moons and Pointed Minarets. And I have a new book coming out with them uh, called Like the Moon Loves the Sky, which you have seen already. I have, I have. Um, that will be coming out in March, inshallah. Inshallah. Um, and then my novels, I've also done picture, uh, my Under My Hijab picture book came out with um, Lee and Lowe, which is a, a actually even smaller publisher um, that focuses on multicultural books. And it has for a while, it's one of the original multicultural publishers. Um, and then my novels have all been published by Simon and Schuster, um, one of the big five, like I mentioned, a, a larger publishing house. And uh, they have a division, what we call an imprint in the publishing industry, uh, called Salam Reads, which was founded by my editor, Zareen Joffrey, um, which is focused on, you know, books by Muslims of all backgrounds um, about Muslims. And um, and that's been a, a lovely home to have have my my novels exist in, and um, yeah, it's just a a little subdivision, and that's the way publishers, big publishers, are divided up into smaller um, groups that maybe focus on certain types of books, and those are what we call imprints. Now, you've mentioned, uh, I think, in one of your interviews, that uh, Beverly uh, clearly was a influence. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. Do you have other? Uh, influences sort of on your style of writing uh, themes we sort of what informs you know your, your art yeah um, Beverly Cleary was a huge influence because I, I, I really love the idea of um, creating the, the mood that I had when I was reading her books as a kid and just really wanting to immerse myself in this community this neighborhood this gang of kids um, this family uh, and and there being um, just little life experiences that were so relatable, even, you know, somebody who never saw herself in books, I didn't pause to think, well, Ramona's not like me. I mean, I think I knew it deep inside that her family was different from mine. They were a white American family, um, but there was still enough about her that I found intriguing. 
Um, and just that idea that kids can have these everyday experiences that, you know, may seem simple or small, you know, friendship challenges or, you know, standing up for yourself in different ways or, you know, owning up to a mistake and, you know, having a family member change on you or, you know, just everyday experiences that are universally relatable uh, within the, in my case, Pakistani American Muslim context. I just love that idea of, of trying to create that feeling. So she's definitely someone I, I look to. Um, and other writers, you know, as a kid, I, I read everything. I read science fiction and mystery and fantasy and all kinds of books, but I, I do tend to gravitate towards realistic character-driven fiction. And uh, even now I, I do read uh, a lot of, you know, contemporary authors. I love to read authors who I've met and know and admire. And so there's a lot of really great stuff coming out. Um, but but mostly the stories I love and, and want to emulate are just, you know, the ones that really get to your heart and just speak to the human experience and, um, you know, things that we all go through in, in one way or another, whether it's dealing with an illness or, um, you know, having to be brave in some way or, or something like that. So can you give us some names of contemporary authors that you enjoy reading? Yeah. So um, I read a lot of middle grade fiction, which is what we call um, the, it's sort of a weird designation because it's not referring to middle school, um, but middle grade is, is sort of that uh, chapter books that are not considered young adult. Sure. Yet. Yeah, yeah. So um, like the ones I write, like Ominous Voice and My Newest More to the Story are solid middle grade, which is sort of, I hate putting age ranges on books because I don't follow them myself, but you know, that eight to 12 year old um, upper elementary, early middle school is what, what target is. Um, so I do read a lot of books by other middle grade authors. And I love authors like uh, Renee Watson, uh, who wrote a beautiful book called Piecing Me Together, which is actually maybe geared towards slightly older children. Um, Jasmine Warga just wrote a beautiful book that came out this year called Other Words for Home about a, a Syrian girl who moves to Ohio to live with her uncle uh, because of the war. And it's, it's written in verse and it's just gorgeous writing. Um, I love that. Uh, Karina Yang Glazer wrote a series called The Vanderbeekers that I'm sure many parents would love having their children read. It's a very, yeah, yeah. Uh, almost has this classic feeling, like the type of books that maybe we read as kids. Um, that's about five kids who live in a, a family with five children who live in a brownstone in, in New York City and the little adventures. It's sort of like this amazing family you wish you were a part of and these siblings who go on these little adventures, but it's very wholesome and um, just very sweet. And they're actually, I think, making the first one into a movie. So it's, it's it had really resonated with people. Um, yeah, and I, I don't know, I could go on and on. I just love, <laughs> I love middle grade fiction. And I feel like it's just, Lucky Broken Girl is another one I love by a woman named Ruth Bihar about a Cuban Jewish immigrant uh, girl living in, in Brooklyn in the 1970s. Um, and she ends up getting into a car accident and, and is in a, in a full body cast for a year, which makes it sound like a really heavy or depressing book, but it's just this beautiful exploration of friendship and forgiveness and, um, you know, resilience and it's funny and, and engaging. So, um, yeah, lots, lots to learn from, from many talented writers. And, and, and how and do you, think, sorry, go ahead. I think it's a great genre for everyone to read, no matter what, what age. Yeah, my kids, my, the, my, my twins are getting in, into that level of books. So I'm personally interested. I ask for personal reasons. I just want to know sort of what's going on. And, and uh, there are many of them are series. And I think that's also nice because then the kids like to sort of, you know, go from volume to volume. 
Oh yeah. And, yeah, uh, and I know and I meet so many kids and they, you know, they love, you know, Rick Riordan and, and others, um, which I think is great. It's, series are awesome. So as we, as we come sort of towards the, the tail end of the, of the conversation, I wanted to ask you just some specific questions about uh, how you write, you know, how I think people might find uh, the, the, the craft and art of writing a little bit mysterious. Like maybe you're like in like some cave somewhere with a candlelight <laughs> and, you know, and a feather pen and, you know, you're dipping it in an inkwell. And I mean, right. how like, can you describe for us where you are when you're writing, how you write, how often do you write? And by the way, I'm asking for ulterior motives because, you know, I'm also... <laughs> you know, uh, writing. And, and so I just want to sort of my way of like comparing notes and see how crazy I am, or maybe I'm not so crazy after all. Yeah, I wish I had a better writing regimen. And that I was one of those very disciplined writers who had, you know, a little desk in the corner, and I'd wake up every morning at 5am. And, you know, after Fudger start writing for three hours or something like that, I, I'm not that person. Okay. And I don't have that kind of discipline when it comes to writing. And, um, I, I end up writing at, in spurts, um, you know, at various times of the day, I have a laptop that travels around my house. I'm often sitting at either my kitchen table or my dining table, depending if my kids are home and watching something on TV in my kitchen. Um, and I can see it. Uh, and you know, I, I do a lot of other things. I get easily distracted. So, um, you know, there's days where I don't write. There's actually weeks where I don't write, especially if I'm traveling or doing a lot of school visits on those days. I just, my, I'm just fried by the end of them. So I cannot imagine being creative at the end of the day. Um, so, you know, I really, I, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about my books. Uh, and I like to think of that as part of the creative process. I think it, it is important. Um, I tried to work things out in my head before I sit down to write. Um, I remember somebody telling me that three hours of writing is considered a full day if you can get to three hours, which made me feel much better about myself <laughs> because when I tell kids that, oh, I've, you know, it took me, they always ask me, how long does it take you to write a book? And if I say, oh, you know, for a novel, it may take me, you know, five or six months. So I see their eyes bug out. And then I have to quickly qualify that, well, I'm not writing every day for eight hours a day. I'm writing, you know, some days I'm not writing at all. And some days I may be writing more. Um, yeah, I don't think people realize that writing for three hours straight is like a marathon. Right, right. And I don't think I ever do because I'm in the middle. I'm checking my email or like picking up my phone or getting up and getting water, or putting in a load of laundry like I'm doing something else because you just need that. I need that time away to just even think through a moment in the book um, or whatever I'm writing um, and then and then come back to it. You know, if, if and sometimes I need hours away from it before I can continue. So for me, you know, I am an outliner when it comes to longer fiction. I like to know where my story's heading before I start. I know some people can just jump in and start writing and I, I need to have it, the story plotted out. And then as I'm writing, it, it changes and I may realize things about my characters or find that the story is heading in a you know, slightly different way and I tweak it or I add a chapter or I move things around a little bit. But um, generally I stay somewhat close to my out my original outline um unless i you know realize something's not working at all and, and have to change it um i do think i'm more of a natural editor than i am a writer i find writing hard <laughs> like especially first drafts like i i really find them grueling and i was so 
happy when I saw this little advertisement for these master classes, I guess, that people in the industry offer. Uh, like Martin Scorsese has one and uh, different people. And, and Judy Bloom was offering one. And there was a little clip from her. And she said, and she's another legend in my mind. Uh, she said something like, I, you know, I hate everything about writing a first draft. <laughs> <I> said, yes, <laughs> you know, because to have someone like her admit that made me feel so much better. Um, because I really do struggle and I have so much self-doubt and this little voice in the back of my head telling me it's garbage and I have to just push through. And, and, and once it's out, I like to go back and, and edit and tweak and revise um, something I know a lot of people don't like to do, but that's actually my favorite part. Um, yeah, I mean, my earliest um, story of writing uh, was this, I don't know if it's it's a real story or if it's apocryphal, but Ibn Sina, the famous philosopher, apparently was on some horse uh, riding with some army in the middle of battle and he was dictating to his scribe like some like you know big philosophical tome and then the what? battle and the battle ensued so he kind of like got off the horse and like went for cover and then the, min the minute the battle stopped he got back on the horse and he just like continued in the sentence and I'm like that's definitely <laughs> not me I'm, I definitely can't do that and no. it always felt so far away like I, I thought that that's what you had to be to be a writer Right, right. And I think a lot of people think that. And I think I used to think that. I used to think that you had to love writing or that you had to find it easy uh, to be good at it or that writers or people who choose to write must do it because they find it easier because they love it. Um, and I know that neither of those are true in my case, um, you know, but I, I love being able to do it and, you know, to have a story to tell. And, you know, for all the reasons we discussed earlier, it's, it's extremely gratifying. And, you know, I feel very, very blessed to be able to do what I do, but, um, you know, it, it can be hard. There's, there's parts of it that are, are ruling and, um, you know, a lot of it is internal, just that, that doubt and, um, you know, not knowing if something's working and, um, and then of course the publishing aspects and all the confusing industry that it is and getting rejections and all that kind of fun stuff too. But, but just from a craft perspective, you know, it can be a, a process. And for me, I, you know, I definitely don't follow a formula. Um, and, you know, hopefully some, some writers out there will find that comforting that, you know, you don't have to be a certain way, um, you know, to, to do it and whatever works for you. Like any, I, I really do sincerely believe that anybody can be a writer and that it's a skill that, you know, can be developed just like anything else. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an. I'm I'm starting to see it as an extension of you. So, it's gonna come out of you. It's you got to do it your way. You you can't you know. Oh, there's a great author that did it this way. I'm gonna try to do it that way. Yeah. It yeah just, I, think I think that it has to be like natural. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um. So that's why I think there's no rhyme or reason. I mean, you have to you know there has to be some discipline. I mean, you have to block out time. You have to think of an idea. Like you said, you you need to make an outline. You kind of need to know what you're doing. I mean, right. one of the horror stories I hear of writers is that when they don't make an outline, what ends up happening is they have so much revision to do mm -hmm. because, you know, characters keep changing, for example, if it's fiction. But if you right. have a pretty good outline from the beginning, you know, you know, kind of the, the arc of these characters. So you, you, you can kind of go through it. But the authors that don't, they, they spend, you know, almost double the time revising. Right. Right. But other and, than and that, I mean, emotional you, journey, right? You need to know. I think that's the, the key is that you need to know what emotional journey your character is going on and then the details you can fit in even. But to know that arc really well um, and how do you want your character to change throughout the course? I think that has to you know, be fleshed out, at least in your mind before you start or it's going to just meander. So uh, last thing I want to ask you, Hannah, is you, you mentioned a, a little while ago that you, you read a certain 
genre of, of literature. Um, I understandably, I mean, that's sort of what, where you are. But do you read anything that's totally outside that, like just for your own self? Like you kind of like, I need distance. So I'm going to read, I don't know, you know, a magazine or a book about this topic that's just so random or an author that's just so random. Do you ever feel like you just kind of need to get away? I do feel it. Um, I don't do it as often as I would like, but it's funny that you mentioned this because I was just thinking about it. Um, and my brothers are both reading amazing books and they have this um, exchange going on with my uncle where they recommend books to each other and they're reading these awesome nonfiction books about various things, whether it's climate change or you know the history of the human race or um, you know the history of religion or just things that are fascinating to me. Um, and some of these like big, thick nonfiction books. And I think, oh, I'm never going to have the time because I have, you know, and that's one of the reasons I read a lot of middle grade fiction is not only because I'm interested in what my fellow authors are writing, but it's it's quick. You know, you can finish a book in, in three hours, maybe or less. Um, but I haven't been doing as much as I want. And I was just thinking the other day that it, I do think it's good. And, and for many years, I worked in public health while I was doing children's writing. And so I was reading a lot of technical documents and just other types of writing. And I feel like it is it is nice to give your brain that, that rest. Um, right now, unfortunately, what I tend to read when I'm not uh, reading fiction is, is the news, various forms of the news. I don't watch news or watch television news at all. Um, so, you know, when I when I have the time, I'm, I'm reading articles and, and trying to keep up with what's happening in the world. And that can be extraordinarily painful. Yeah. Um, so that's like I a full contact I, sport. Yeah, that's 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 intense. Yeah, exactly. So I think I need I do need some other um, literature that is just different. Um, like you said, what do you what do you turn to? I mean, I had this uh, kind of like nervous reaction when I finished my, my PhD and I said, I never want to read anything in that subject ever again. And I went on like this bender for like a couple of years where I just sort of, you know, I just didn't want to read at all. It was re really academically it was like a lot. Mm -hmm. And when I came out of that, I realized, okay, obviously it's not black and white, but I realized like you that there were all of these things I really want to read because I'm, I naturally find them interesting, but I didn't. And I said, well, what am I waiting for? Uh, why don't I just read them? So I just started reading anything and everything that I'm interested in. And I found that it balances my quote unquote, you know, like professional life. So sometimes some people think, you know, all I do all day is like read fiqh or, you know, something like that. But I don't. I, I read the stuff that I want to read. Um, I mean, of course, I have to do that other stuff to keep that going. And, you know, I, I use it on a daily basis. But to, to let my mind calm a little bit and, and to ease... I read uh, other subjects and lately, like the last year or so, I've been reading more literature. Mm. And that's what I'm finding, you know, really uh, rewarding. Mm -hmm. You know, just getting into a good book with good character, good English. Uh, so I read I read some Shakespeare over the summer. Uh, I really enjoyed reconnecting uh, some Faulkner. Um, uh, Shelby Foote is one of my favorite authors because uh, of his famous Civil War series but he actually has several novels so I read some of his novels I really enjoyed reading those and now currently and I, I hope inshallah I can finish it I'm actually reading Proust so this gigantic eight oh. volume you know, <laughs> novel I'm, I'm about halfway through so yeah. uh, I mean that's a little bit of it's like a little long winded so that it requires a little bit of of stamina, but I'm enjoying that. It's just completely, you would not think that I would read that, but mm -hmm. I find that it balances everything out. 
and kind of keeps me engaged with with reading, which I think is very important in language, but also something that I can get some some joy from and not feeling like I have to read this because it's a chore. Yeah, totally. And I, I yeah, I I feel like I was more um, adventurous as a reader when I was younger and I was just hungry for books but, and I had the time but I would just pick up anything and read it. And I remember even my, my dad had a small collection of, of books at home. And so I read some of his, and I remember he had this, you know, anthology of Steinbeck. And I remember one summer reading that, you know, something I really honestly would never want to read now, but I read it as a teenager um, or Roots, which I remember just being so fascinated by um, and thought recently that I want my, my son to read it and I want to reread it. But um, I think it is it is a great outlet to just and, and enriches you in so many ways that, you know, we could go on forever talking about all the benefits of reading and, and reading outside of yourself and um, and what that does and how how it benefits you and your brain and, and your empathy and everything else. So I think it's great. Well, I mean, offline, if there are any books that, you know, you're interested in and, and you think that I would be interested, I'd, I'd really appreciate just like a little message like, oh, hey, check this book out. I mean, I'm always looking. I have very, very eclectic you know, collection of books. Other than the Islam books, which I mean, sort of a standard like library. The other stuff, it's really, really random. So okay. if you have anything you ever, you know, think that I would find interesting and, and vice versa, I'd love to pass on uh, books Please that do. I think you might, yeah, you might no, find. I would love that. Thank you. Well, well, Hannah, thank you so much for making the time. I really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, there's oh, I, a, I hope it was what you were, what you were looking for. It, it far exceeded, far exceeded my, my expectations. I mean, uh, I think you're doing not only important work, but I think the, the key for me is that you're helping to inspire a new generation. And for any anybody that's a parent or anybody that's in the community or anybody that's a teacher, I mean, that's what we long for. We long for a way to inspire. And, and I think you're doing you know, a great job, you know, mashallah, helping our children in, in many ways that people like me can't. Uh, that you're touching them in a way that we can't, and I'm and I'm so grateful that you're doing that, uh, and I'm you know always hopeful uh, and optimistic to see what's coming out next. I know that you're working on some new stuff, and I can't wait to see it, inshallah. And if there's anything that we can do to help and support your work even more, please please let us know. Thank you, and you always do, and you have in so many ways. So thank you. Um, it you know it means a lot to me to have your support in so many ways. So thank you. Oh.